0: welcome back to unjustly I am Stephanie and this is my co-host Sandy hi and this week um I decided to do um it's like a heifer with a story I don't know it's so I'm doing like a quick history of satanic panic and then that led me into this um, San Antonio 4 and kind of how their um, satanic panic laid the foundation for the arrest of the san antonio four Mm -hmm. um but before we get started i thought it would be kind of funny to ask sandy um since we're doing um something about satan um what is your best halloween costume and why like one that i've done yeah or one that i think is cool no what something you've done like your best halloween costume okay i want to say i have two
1: yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, so the one that I did last year was really fun um, because my daughter wanted to be a voodoo doll, Oh, which I was so fucking proud of her for choosing mm-hmm. because I, so I've always like raised her like be something scary. You know, it's <laughs> Halloween. Don't be a princess. And when she was one years old, she was the Chucky doll. Mm-hmm. Oh, and she nailed it with Aww. her big little knife. Yeah. She was so good. Um <clears throat> And so when she decided that she wanted to be something scary, she found the voodoo doll. And so then me and my husband were like, cool, we're going to match you. So mm-hmm. we were witch doctors. And, um, and it was so fitting for us because New Orleans is mm-hmm. like a part of us. It's our favorite city. That's where we got eloped. Um, so it just kind of had this like New Orleans vibe vibe to it and it was so much fun i just put it on my stories i didn't put it as a post i'll send it to you though because i think it's worth it because she had the creepy face down like she had the look um and then she held a little voodoo doll also next to her and then we were just like looking all cool i was pregnant but like not that Mm -hmm. pregnant so like Mm -hmm. i still looked cool Mm -hmm. not like mom (laughs) um so that was my absolute favorite But another good one I thought was good until I was older and realized what it meant. But in high school, um, me and my best friend, her name was Mo, is not was, (laughs) it's still her name. Um, We were a plug and an outlet. Oh, that's funny.
0: So it was funny. Usually yeah. reserved for couples, but so funny I did just not as much. know that
1: <laughs> when we were, we were like, oh, we want to do something matching, and then we're like, we're gonna make it, and so then we were plugging an outlet, and then when we went around, like everyone's like, that's so funny, that's so cool, and I just thought like, oh, you know outlet. Yeah. It's funny. Who's an outlet for Halloween? No mm-hmm. one's an, I was the outlet. <laughs> <laughs> like I was like, oh, I'm the cool random person. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then it wasn't until I was an adult. I showed someone that picture cause we had a picture and she's trying to plug into my outlet <laughs> so bad. And I was like, look how funny we were. And they're like, that's gross. And I was like, what? And they're like, that's like a, it's a sexualized an, joke. Innuendo, yeah. Yes. And I was like, fuck i was like 16 years old <laughs> no idea <laughs> no idea i just thought we were these like cool random idea chicks um yeah. not the case but i thought uh, i mean whatever <laughs> it is what it is <laughs> It now. is what it
0: is uh i wish i had some cool costume i can't think of i feel like i spent a lot of time um as a black cat Like, I feel like I did that for like multiple (laughs) years growing up and that's not really like creative or anything, but I had these really cool like, um, Doc Martens that Mm -hmm. I just wanted to wear everywhere. And so they like completed my look. Oh, I feel. I got these shoes. I'm gonna be a cat. Yeah. I'm gonna be a cat. Um, And I felt like really edgy, I guess, maybe. I don't know. You're the most edgiest. Cat vibes. I don't know. The edgiest cat I've ever seen. Yeah, I don't even like cats. But yeah, so I did that. I will say like I have my mom dressed me up as Raggedy Ann and that was kind of scary. It wasn't meant to be scary, but I look at those pictures and I'm like, that's like a terrifying child with like red crazy hair (laughs) and like red cheeks like Kids are scary. Yeah, no. In general, kids are creepy. Kids can be creepy.
1: Um, uh, yeah. well, so sometimes when my daughter was a little bit younger, not that much younger, this was like last year, maybe. <laughs> sometimes she would come into my room in the middle of the night oh, no. and just
0: like stare at me Parano- paranormal paranormal
1: activity. yeah, and yeah. like I would feel something breathing on me, mm-hmm. but like, I don't know, I was like still half asleep, and I'd turn around and she's just like smiling at me, just staring, and I'm like, Baby, what are you doing? And she's like, I don't know, I just missed you. <laughs> I'm like you're so creepy no and this wasn't like an isolated incident this was like a lot of times
0: oh no I don't know I would like Mm -hmm.
1: or when they like sleepwalk
0: like Mm the little ones when they sleepwalk oh no thanks I didn't know that was a thing no just kick them yeah (laughs) do what you gotta do (laughs) anyways okay so um, I got my information from an article called The History of Satanic Panic in the U.S. and Why It's Not Over Yet by Asia Romano um, another one called or named uh, How Four Latinx Lesbians Restarted Their Lives After Being Wrongfully Imprisoned by Emily Starbuck-Gerson from the Innocence Project of Texas website. And then lastly, the Southwest of Salem documentary by Deborah Eskenazi. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's get started. So for those of you who don't know what Satanic Panic is, um, Satanic Panic is slash was a prolonged mass media scare widely known due to satanic ritual abuse and a rash of false allegations made against daycare centers in the 80s. At its core, satanic ritual abuse claims relied on overzealous law enforcement, unsubstantiated statements from children, and coercive and suggestive interrogation by therapists and prosecutors. Uh, So how did satanic panic come to be? There are a number of factors that contributed to the increased interest in and fear of the occult during the late 1960s and 70s. The Manson cult's operation in the late 60s ended in a string of mass murders in the summer of 1969. That one's so scary. As we all know, um, that left the nation shocked and with organized ritualistic killing on the brain. So let's just kind of get into it. So that same year, um, organist-turned-occultist Anton Levy who was the founder of the Church of Satan, published his book, The Satanic Bible, which plagiarized several sources and mostly regurgitated earlier philosophies of self-actualization and self-empowerment from writers like H.L. Mencken and um, Ayn Rand. With the rise of Satanism as a recognized practice and the 1971 publication of William Peter Blatty's best-selling novel, The Exorcist, and then its 1973 film adaptation and its claims of being a true story the exorcist impacted america's collective psyche regarding the existence of demons and single-handedly transformed the ouija board from a fun harmless parlor game into a malevolent device capable of inducing spirit possession demonic infestation and other paranormal activity i would never fuck with a ouija board see when i was little my best friend's mom Um, gave her older sister, she was three years older than I was. So I, I want to say at the time she might've been like nine or 10, um, gave her a Ouija board for her birthday. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that like at the time we kind of real, like we realized like, oh, that's probably not something that you should (laughs) be giving a 10 year old. Right. And maybe they just, they just saw it as a fun parlor game and not anything like evil. But looking back now after watching all of these like scary movies, specifically something like The Exorcist, I'm Mm -hmm. like, that was kind of crazy and probably not something I'd be giving my children. Good job, mom. Yeah. And so as if that wasn't enough to scare the American public, in 1972, self-proclaimed Christian evangelist Mike Warnke published um, Satan's Seller. It was a fabricated memoir that only discredited, that was only discredited after 20 years. His memoir claimed that he served as a satanic high priest and was engaged, among other things, in ritualistic orgies. That same year, Levy published another book called Satanic Rituals, which reinforced the idea that occult rituals had become a part of life for many Americans. Though it had no connections to satanism or traditional occult religion, near the end of the decade, Jonestown gave the world another example of what violence in occult looks like, Growing interest in the occult also coincided with the rise of a number of extremely well-publicized serial killings that took place in the 1970s. You had the Zodiac Killer and the Alphabet Killer, both of which used ritualistic patterns in their killings and neither of whom have ever been caught. Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, the Hillside Stranglers, and David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam, who sparked a mass panic during the summer of 1977 in New York City. Many of these killers were able to maintain an image of having the upper hand in one way or another. Zodiac Killer and Berkowitz wrote taunting letters to the press and police. Bundy escaped from prison and resumed his killing sprees. John Wayne Gacy hid behind a friendly clown who performed for children. As the anarchy associated with these high profile killings grew, so did public fear. We're finally in the 1980s, and while America was in a time of economic growth and financial prosperity, the Reagan era was also a time of great unease centered on population growth, urbanization, and the rise of double income family model, which created a sharp rise in the need for daycare services. As a result in the shift, anxieties about protecting the nuclear family from the unknown dangers of this era were high. Let's talk about what else was going on in the 80s. We had the rise of the AIDS epidemic. Oh. Kidnapped victims started appearing on milk cartons for the first time. There was mass panic around 1982 due to the Tylenol murders. Oh my gosh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Trick or treat scares um, thanks to the Halloween candy killer, Ronald Clark O'Brien. And we had the first wave of reports of scary killer clowns attempting to prey on children. That was a crazy time. (laughs) It's been a couple crazy years. And each one of these outbreaks of social unrest signaled America's growing alarm over stranger danger and the fear that an unknown evil could be lurking around every corner. Ugh. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy, right? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah.
1: Imagine being a kid at that time.
0: Yeah. So I was going to like bring this up later, but all like as I'm going through all of this and as I like look back on it after having done all the research, all of this seems like it was such a crazy time and we look back on it and we think oh my god can you imagine living in a time that was so crazy mm-hmm. but then i like stopped and i thought about how <laughs> we're literally living in a time that we're going to be looking back on in 20 or 30 years and like, thinking like how did we survive? how that? did yeah how did you mm-hmm. survive and you know if you have children and grandchildren one day, you will most likely be telling them what it was like to be living in 2020 Mm -hmm. with all of the unrest that we have going on right now. So it was just really interesting to see the parallels of you know, a crazy time then and the crazy time that we're going through now. So yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I guess crazy times never ended.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) We can look back at Uh any period and be like, oh my God, this was happening and that was happening. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Like it's always crazy, but you have like these... Spikes where you can, you can feel the craziness yeah. Or like you can feel, you know, that this specifically this year, um, is or this year, or last year have been especially crazy and especially mm, like impactful. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you think of the summer of 69 and you're like, that was a crazy time. You, I feel like we're going to have that same, like that same thought and feeling in a couple of years, when we when we think back to 2020, what
1: yeah. happened
0: in 69? Every we went to the moon. We <laughs> went to the moon. Yeah, in 1969. Charles Manson. I mean, like there were so oh, that many was 69? things. Yeah. So yeah, there's so many things that were just kind of going on. There's um, there's a podcast series <laughs> called "The Summer of 69." <gasps> um, that's really, really. No good. No wonder you know so much about that. <laughs> huh? No. It, yes, I. I'm trying to think if I finished it. That one was really interesting though, because they, so they covered obviously Charles Manson, but they also covered all of the other things that not just crime related, but just other things that happened in that okay. summer that were, um, yeah, like, in, like an, in, like impactful to the world that we live in today. So check it out. <laughs> Christian fundamentalism and the rise of literal belief in angels and devils was on the rise fundamentalist preachers like jerry falwell and his moral majority founded in 1979 gained prominence across the country passing along a literal fire and brimstone style of christianity the evangelical movement wasn't alone in its growing occult obsession and fear-mongering the media also played a huge role in inciting public fear in 1988 Geraldo Rivera's documentary, The Devil Worship, exposing Satan's underground, became the highest-rated televised documentary to air up to that point in time. In 1980, a since-discredited memoir called Michelle Remembers became a scandalous bestseller based on its detailing of a childhood spent undergoing occult sexual abuse. Its co-authors... Controversial psychologist Lawrence Pazder and his wife Michelle Smith, who happened to be a former patient of his, claimed to have regressed into Michelle's childhood through hypnosis. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Pazder allegedly helped Smith uncover memories of past abuse at the hands of a member of the Church of Satan, which Pazder insisted was older than Levy's group by several centuries. Although its claims and allegations were repeatedly and thoroughly debunked, thanks to widespread and credulous media praise, they were able to double down on their story and Pastor became seen as an expert in the arena of what would be known as satanic ritual abuse. Despite its unverifiable foundation of its stories of abuse and sex orgies, Michelle Remembers was presented during the 80s and 90s as a textbook for legal professionals and other authorities. That's bananas. I'm sorry. That's just bananas. (laughs) The false narrative of Michelle Remembers would directly impact the nation for over a decade. Its dark occult fantasies helped spark the rash of widely dramatic, highly unfounded accusation of satanic ritual abuse that were attached to a string of daycare centers throughout the 80s. The belief that daycare owners across the country were visiting a dark occult acts of child abuse upon children was the most prominent part of a broader daycare sex abuse mass panic, which was itself part of the 90s, much broader wave of fear. By the mid-80s, a wave of seminars, tutorials, and educational videos for authorities and evangelicals on the subject of recognizing and fighting satanic cults was sweeping the U.S., None of this, however, resulted in any evidence that such ritual torture cults existed. Instead, the legal system continued to victimize innocent adults who were caught up in what was essentially a 20th century witch hunt. Mm. Salem, 1980. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So where does this leave us? In Satan's Silence, Nathan notes that the ultimate irony of satanic panic is that its alleged victims, the children, were silenced during the laborious investigations around the hysteria, but not by the defendants. Instead, they were silenced by prosecutors, therapists, and interviewers who refused to listen to their initial assertions and drilled them for juicier answers until they changed their statement. So this is what led me to the actual case that I'll be covering today, which is the case of the San Antonio Four. I just felt like it was a really good example of how um, the idea that something like Satanic Panic actually existed, um, lended to charging and um, convicting, convicting sorry, charging and convicting four innocent women of something that was so clearly just a crazy a made up story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A conspiracy. Yeah. I have a of. fun fact. Yeah. Um, My husband's from San Antonio. Fun fact number one. <laughs> That's all I got. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so this is a story of the San Antonio four. Um, it starts in the summer of 1994 with a uh, 22 year old Elizabeth uh, Ramirez I'm going to call her Liz for the rest of the story. So Liz and her friends, Anna Vasquez, Christy Mayhew, and Cassandra Rivera, who were accused of raping Liz's two young nieces during a week-long stay at her apartment in San Antonio. The allegations against the women, all of whom were openly gay, were outlandish and constantly changing. The nieces, their father, and grandmother told various authorities and two courts that Aunt Liz and her friends had suddenly called the nieces in from playing one day to strip them naked— hold them down and violently penetrate them with a syringe of unidentified liquid, white powder and a tampon.
1: That's a lot going on. That's like on. really heavy, right? Uh-huh. Like that's like and pretty, very specific.
0: Very specific, very crazy, but like also very scary. So like you have these two kids saying this like of course you're going to want to listen and and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. They claimed one of the women had put a weapon to their heads. In one of the tellings, it was a knife, but later a gun, and then two guns. All of the women were convicted. Ramirez was tried first and sentenced to thirty seven years, while Anna, Christy, and Cassie were tried together and sentenced each to fifteen years. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the four the four women mm-hmm. um because I think it's kind of important to know how they're all how they're like all connected, okay? So Anna Vasquez, um, she says, so in the documentary, she says that um, with gay bashing being pretty common back then, it wasn't safe to be out in most places. And so after seeing how the gay kids at her school were treated, she decided to stay in the closet until after high school. So Anna came out after graduating in 1993 and began attending college. But unfortunately, after taking a p- couple of classes, her financial aid fell through and she started working at Little Caesars to save enough money to continue taking classes. So Anna's working at Little Caesars at this point. Mm-hmm. I love their crazy bread. <laughs> I haven't Fun tried fact it. number two. I <laughs> have not tried that. <laughs> Um, So Cassandra Rivera, Cassie, um, she was just a customer at Little Caesars. So she happened to come in and she met. Anna. um, And they ended up hitting it off and they started dating. Cassie was a mother of two young children at the time and had recently separated from her husband. And basically they say that as soon as um, Anna and Cassie started dating, they formed what they considered to be a normal, happy family. So yes, they were two lesbians, but they were basically like husband and wife, even though they weren't married and they were just raising the children. And like, you could see videos of them and they looked totally normal, very happy. Yeah. Like the kids looked really happy. It Mm. it was just, yeah, it was nice. And so then you have Elizabeth, Liz Ramirez. Um, she spent a lot of time with, um, Anna and Christy who was an already out lesbian who worked at little caesars with anna okay so this is you know how it's all coming together and then um so who's christy so christy had been attending college but had actually had to take a break to live and work in san antonio and she became liz's roommate and the two ended up dating for a short period of time the four women quickly became a tight-knit group they understood what it was like to live like a gay Latinx person in a conservative town. The friendships were especially important to Liz, who had come out to her mom at the age of 16 and faced rejection. She became legally emancipated. Actually, so she becomes emancipated um, at the age of 16, but it wasn't like her doing. Her mom was so upset by the fact that she had come out that she like went to the court and basically gave up her daughter. Yeah. So it was really sad. So, when all of this happened, um, Liz went to live with her older sister, Rosemary. Um, Rosemary lived with her then-husband, Javier, um, who was constantly hitting on Liz, even though she was only 16. So, it's already kind of like a toxic environment for Liz. And, I mean, she's going through all this awful stuff, so... Liz ended up getting pregnant shortly after graduating from high school and Javier would reach out to her with love letters offering to take care of her and the baby even though he wasn't the actual father so that's like really weird he was already separated from Rosemary Liz's Mm -hmm. sister and he's in another place like I read that he wasn't living in San Antonio anymore he was just still like kind of following up with Liz And again, offering to take care of her and the baby. Mm -hmm. And so Liz, feeling uncomfortable with the attention that she was getting from Javier, turned down all of his advances, including the latest one to take care of them, um, her and the baby, which resulted in him being really angry. So some time goes by. One day in July of 1994, Javier went to see Liz with his two daughters, Vanessa and Stephanie, who were then, I think, seven and nine years old he tells Liz that his daughter wanted or his daughters wanted to spend time with their aunt and asked if it would be okay for her to watch them for the week so that they could spend some time together. And I mean, being Mexican, Mm -hmm. we know that this is totally normal. You know, like you spend time with your cousins, with your aunts, you know, like um, Liz says in the documentary that like family is everything. Mm -hmm. And so even though, He and her sister were no longer together at the end of the day. Those are her nieces, and she wanted to spend time with them. So she says yes, and Stephanie and Vanessa spent the week of July 24th through the 31st with Liz, but also with Anna, Cassie, and Christy because they spent most of their time together. They kind of became their own little family, Okay, and so they were always together. And so just a couple months later... Actually, just days after Liz gave birth to her baby boy, law enforcement officials brought the women in for questioning. Christy says that the investigators asked pointed questions about their sexuality. And ultimately, the four women faced allegations that they had sexually assaulted the two girls during their stay. So they were already immediately being judged based on their sexuality. A hundred percent. Mm hmm. So, and it wasn't just that they were assaulted, it was that they were molested and gang-raped as part of a devil-worshipping ritual. The girls claimed that Liz and 21-year-old Christy, 19-year-old Cassie, and 19-year-old Anna spent the week in an orgy of molestation. The nieces said that the women were topless while they held them down and inserted various objects such as tampons coated with gel into them. So... And they also said, again, like that they threatened them with a gun and then a knife and then a gun again. So in the documentary, all four of the women stated that they felt like they had no need for lawyers because they had nothing to hide and that eventually the truth would save them. So they were kind of naive. But again, like most of us do believe in the legal system that if you're not lying and you're telling the truth and you didn't do anything, you you have nothing to worry about, so... Um, unfortunately the times were the early nineties. And as we discussed earlier, the nation was in the final throes of satanic panic. So fears had already swept the nation that satanic cults existed and that daycare workers abused children as a form of, um, ritual abuse. And although the four women were not aware of this trend that was going on, psychologists, DA's offices, and other experts had all bought into the hysteria, creating a modern day witch hunt. Cassie distinctly remembers their sexuality being a part of the jury selection with half of all potential jurors raising their hand when asked if they were uncomfortable with homosexuality. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, we talked a little bit about that on your other episode about the jury. Jury selection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The four women were told that their sexuality wasn't supposed to be a factor in the trials, but homophobia was definitely at the forefront for both trials. Um, They would say things like, close your eyes, imagine being a lesbian female sacrificing her nieces to her friends and then holding them down and doing all of these things to them. Of course, in the jury's Uh, mind, they're picturing the most awful thing that could be done to children. Um, Cassie remembers that throughout her trial, it was repeatedly pointed out that she was gay and that it was insinuated that her sexuality meant that she was capable of this sort of crime. In fact, it was the reason why her victims were female. So it's just this like backwards thinking and a a lack of knowledge on what it meant to be homosexual. Mm -hmm. And so they just saw this as like a deviancy that lent them to crime, specifically crime against women, like Mm -hmm. little girls, because, oh, they're lesbians. So they would only want to do this with girls. So that makes sense. Oh, what a mess. Um Cassie's defense attempted to put the children's mother on the stand to explain that the likely inspiration for their story about a gun, given that none of the women owned one, was actually an incident with their father who held a gun to their mother's head in front of them. But the judge deemed that irrelevant and refused to let the jury hear it. Wow. Yeah, I know. I know it's also bad. <laughs> <laughs> so the defense managed to keep the jury from hearing speculation that the alleged attacks were satanic related, but prosecutor Philip Casson got the message across nonetheless with language about Ramirez having sacrificed her niece on the altar of lust. Okay. So it's just the wording. I mean, wording is everything. Yeah. Right. So when Cassie took the stand um, and she said that she would never hurt her nieces, Casson announced, so says OJ, ma'am okay. He later explained away the fact that the children and their grandmother couldn't keep their story straight by telling the jury that that was to be expected of children. So, of course, they can't keep their story straight, their children. Yeah. You know, like, this awful thing happened to them. Like, don't blame them. He told the jury he wasn't asking them to convict Ramirez because she's gay, but instead that being a lesbian was consistent with abusing girls. And just as a side note, Casson goes on to become a judge and run for district attorney in 2014. So Liz was tried separately as she was the supposed ringleader, and in the first trial, Kazan ridiculed the idea that Javier put his daughters up to making the accusations, claiming that no father would subject his daughters to a rape exam unnecessarily. But by the time of the second trial, the defense had discovered that Javier had in fact previously taken them in for rape examinations after making unfounded claims that they'd been raped by a 10-year-old boy while in their mother's custody. So it's not the first time that he does something like this. The judge decided uh, Javier's previous allegations were irrelevant, and so they didn't uh, allow the jury to hear about them. So, if you haven't caught on yet, it's kind of shaping up to be more of like a revenge story. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Javier is for being turned down so many times that he was turned down by Liz, even though she was only sixteen and was his ex wife's um, sister, and so matter. Yeah. The defendants provided a timeline of the week the children stayed with Liz that showed the young women were seldom at the apartment together with the opportunity to team up for the bizarre attack alleged. They were juggling work at Arby's and AutoZone, shifts watching the girls and Cassie's kids and coordinating rides to Walmart, public parks, and the doctor, but no one could demonstrate an alibi given the vague and changing claims about when the alleged attacks actually happened. So it was impossible for them to prove... That they hadn't done it because Mm -hmm. every time that the allegations would come up, it was a different time. And so they had to keep changing it. So it was just impossible for them to prove concretely that there was no physical way for them to have all been there together. Okay. Does that make sense? Hard to prove their alibi when there's not a specific time. There's no specific time. It just Mm -hmm. keeps changing. Yeah. So... When the children and their grandmother were questioned about changing their stories as to what the weapon was and which woman had threatened the girls, they insisted their stories hadn't changed. So the court reporter must have gotten their testimonies in the previous trial wrong. So they were just blaming everything on everybody else and mm-hmm. not taking any accountability for And again, these are seven and nine-year-olds or maybe eight and 10-year-olds at the time. So it was probably really hard for them Yeah. at the time too. But again, like why did none of the adults pick up on the fact that nothing was consistent in their stories
1: they just had something in mind already and they were trying to run with it yeah i mean they would say it once and that's all they needed to hear right
0: Ultimately, on February 6th of 1997, the jury convicted Liz of aggravated assault of a child and indecency with a child. She was sentenced to 37 and a half years in prison, and one year later, in February 1998, the remaining three women denied the allegations and told the jury that they spent the week doing routine, mundane things such as shopping and going to Arby's for lunch. They testified that they were never there altogether at the same time, but on February 14th, 1998, Christy... Anna and Cassie were convicted of aggravated sexual assault of a child and indecency with a child. Each was sentenced to 15 years in prison. So 37 and a half for Liz, who was their Mm -hmm. aunt, and Mm -hmm. then 15 years for the other three. In both trials, prosecutors won convictions by discounting the many inconsistencies in the girls' testimonies and argued that the inconsistencies were outweighed by the scientific testimony of the pediatrician. And that theme was repeated by the appellate court in affirming the convictions on the direct appeal. So, a little bit about what was going on. Letters to various innocence projects weren't helping the women's cases, but Daryl Otto, a Canadian research scientist, stumbled upon the case and began corresponding with them. He contacted Debbie Nathan at the National Center for Reason and Justice, a nonprofit that helps wrongly accused people of crimes against children who then reached out to Deborah Eskenazi, an LGBTQ filmmaker who became devoted to telling their story. So this is the person who ends up making the film, the documentary film. Okay. She interviewed each woman and put together a short film about the injustices of their case, focusing on the separation of Anna and Cassie. She would share the film wherever she could and happened to get the attention of Rosie Gonzalez, who was a prominent gay attorney. After learning about the injustices the woman had experienced, she helped host screenings of the film, which eventually gained the attention of the Innocence Project of Texas. The Innocence Project began working with a retired investigator who had kept all of the case files. Suddenly, Anna was unexpectedly paroled in 2012. That same year, Stephanie recanted her allegations on camera to Eskenazi. Stephanie was the oldest of the children. How old was she at that time? In 2012? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, she had kids. She must have been so in like, her adult. early 20s. Yeah. Okay. She claims that she and her sister were coerced into making the allegations by her father, who has since made more allegations of his children being sexually assaulted in the context of custody battles involving his other children. So he just has a history of making sexual assault allegations against people. This sounds and like Munchausen of sexual proxy? assault. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of. It, he's like a very it's a dark thing. person yeah he's mm-hmm. like very evil so in the documentary um stephanie meets up with the um the film director and they like have lunch or whatever and she starts telling them what happened so this is kind of what she says she says that she and her sister had been playing with barbie dolls when her grandmother walked in on them playing with them quote unquote inappropriately I feel like all kids do this where you grab your dolls and you pretend they're kissing and you pretend they're, like, having what we think as kids is, like, sex or whatever, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that's basically what they were doing. And she says that they were young and stupid and experimenting with dolls that they would – with what they would see on TV. So – They would see things on TV and then they would replicate it with their dolls and her grandmother and father ended up locking them in a room for what she says felt like hours and they began questioning them. They wanted to know who had touched them down there and despite telling them over and over that nothing had happened, she says her grandmother started putting stuff in their heads. They were told that they would be taken away from her father and the grandmother, that they would end up in the streets... And that they would go to prison for being liars. She says that she remembers her dad doing inappropriate things in front of them with other women. And that she's confronted him about what she feels are lies. And he's threatened her saying that he'll have her kids taken away from her. So even though she like grew up and started to realize that all of these things were most likely made up. Because she had absolutely no memory yeah. of anything happening she was scared to say anything for all these years because he's threatening her every time with saying that he's going to have her kids taken away from her. He's a terrible person. He's an awful person. Is um, he still alive? Yeah. Ooh. So is she, Stephanie continues to be afraid of her dad and her sister Vanessa refuses to speak on the matter. So she's so scared that she just mm-hmm. doesn't want to say anything about it. Michelle Mondo, a reporter from the San Antonio Express, pointed out that if you take the stories that Stephanie and Vanessa gave to the police and you take the little girls out of the story and replace them with a man, the whole scenario sounds like a porn story. Uh, <laughs> Essentially, a man's version of what women would do in their spa- spare time. Mm, so, so it's like a story that it definitely dad would
1: make because he's a man.
0: Right. So it lends to the idea that they were definitely being fed this story of what happened to them by their father and their grandmother who happened to be like, a very old school, traditional, conservative, you know, she's religious too, so they're very Catholic. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that also lent to her thinking, oh my God, they were doing this, like, inappropriate thing. It must have been because something happened to them. Yeah. When... Not because it's a normal... They're just kids playing. Yeah. Yeah. Although a recantation never should have been necessary to see that the allegations were false... Um, child abuse expert dr nancy kellogg who frequently testifies for prosecutors lent them credibility by first telling authorities who were deciding on whether or not to prosecute and then testifying in both trials that a mark she observed on the hymen of one of the girls was a scar likely caused by painful penetration which is something that we now know and should have been known back then is untrue Mm -hmm. so Although the idea that satanic cults were preying on children and had already had already been debunked, Kellogg concluded that the alleged assault may be satanic-related and shared her suspicions with authorities. Additionally, the use of junk forensic science in criminal courts was rampant. Fortunately for the San Antonio Four, Texas is one of the few states that has taken steps to address wrongful convictions based on bad scientific evidence.
1: Ooh, good for Texas. Yes.
0: It's like the one thing. I feel that, like... <laughs> Texas is progressive on, which is, like, good. Yeah. Right? I I was a little surprised that you said that. Yeah. I was surprised when I read it. I love Texas, though. I
1: was was just going to ask, have you been? We went together. I've never been
0: to Texas. Psych. (laughs) I was in Austin for your bachelorette party. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So, it's, okay, it's 2013 statue informally known as the junk science law allows people to challenge their convictions where there is new evidence or change scientific evidence, even if they've exhausted all of their appeals, which is great oh, okay. because so many people go through their appeals and feel like that's yeah. the end of the road. This specific law allow at least gives you the chance that if there is some sort of change, mm-hmm. um, you still have got the an, opportunity. Yeah, you still have a chance.
1: That's definitely something that should be widespread.
0: Yeah. Would think it would be you would think- it sounds logical yeah eventually in 2013 dr kellogg signed an affidavit stating that her previous testimony was factually inaccurate since science had changed however um, dr kellogg continues to be considered an expert in the field she's on the faculty at the university of texas leads a center specializing in assessing children for abuse and not only trains other medical professionals, but created a computer program for diagnosing abuse that is sold to hospitals. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Kellogg has testified in over 800 abuse cases, and this isn't the only one in which the accuser of someone she helped convict has recanted. It's anyone guess how many innocent people are in prison thanks to her testimony. This is very a la... um, The staircase? Was it the staircase? Mm -hmm. That, you know, the guy, the blood splatter expert who was not an expert at all. Do you remember that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Innocence Project of Texas admitted evidence, and the state agreed that the women deserved new trials and released the remaining three women in 2013. By this point, Liz had been in prison for nearly 17 years. Oh, my gosh. While Cassie and Christy had been in for close to two, for four... By this point, Liz had been in prison for nearly 17 years, while Cassie and Christy had been in for close to 14. In 2016, a judge overturned the women's convictions, deeming the new trial unnecessary. However, he stated that there wasn't enough proof to declare that the women were innocent.
1: Oh, I hate when Mm -hmm. you do that. So it's like, okay, you can go,
0: but I can't say you're actually innocent. Yeah. So there, it's still, it was still on the record. Mm-hmm. Luckily, the Court of Criminal Appeals disagreed, and in November of 2016, the women were declared actually innocent. Yay! Yeah, the official exoneration entitled the women to compensation from Texas, which is calculated based on the number of days served. Cassie, for example, received just over $1 million plus a monthly annuity for life. Their compensation package also pays for in-state higher education, each of the four women donated 100000 of their compensation to the Innocence Project of Texas. Oh, that was nice of them. Isn't that so nice? Yeah. I know. Oh, They're like they really, really great people. Yeah. That's good. Um, homophobia and hysteria didn't deprive these women of their freedom. Prosecutors did. The state's reluctance to take responsibility in a case where its feelings have been unusually well-documented and publicized suggests locking up the occasional innocent person isn't that big of a deal. With that conviction at all cost, mentality pervasive among prosecutors in the U.S., we can expect that there are many more innocent people in prison than we know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's the story of the San Antonio Four. There's obviously a whole lot else that you can like read into. Mm-hmm. And Watch the documentary. The documentary is a really good um, way to like really get to know the four, the four women. But since we did a quick recap of Satanic Panic and then got into the story, mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the gist of it all. But I did think it was interesting or like good for everyone to know where the four are now. Okay, so is this a bright spot? Um, sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you I want mean, it to be.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a bright spot. Okay. So Christy lives with her mother, who's in poor health. Um, oh. she I know she didn't get to be around her during the years that she was incarcerated, so she's. Now that she's cleared of the cr- crime, she um, she's making up for lost time and taking care of her, which is really nice okay. because, you know, what else would you want to do? Um, counseling has helped her process her feelings and reestablish a relationship with her mom. While she says that there's no money in the world that could compensate her and her friends for everything they lost in the time that they spent in prison, it has helped make feel life a little more normal. After taking time to get settled back into life outside of prison, Christy feels better and ready to pursue higher education. She says a lot of the people have misconceptions about the gay community. I don't know why, but some people relate being gay or lesbian to some kind of deviant sexual behavior like something is wrong with us. Mm, mm -mm. And that's really why I think with our case, especially in the 90s, things took off because we were gay and they thought, of course, they must have done it. Now, even though times have changed and things are different, there's still always a lack of education, which is so true. It is true. And it's clearly something we're still, you know, working on. But so Christy wanted to be a vet. And I think that's what she was going to school for first before she had to take her break. Mm -hmm. And um, I read somewhere that even though going to vet school, um, I think it was too much time at this point. She was taking courses at like a... Uh, like a vocational school. Oh, okay. Yeah, which which is nice. Um, Maybe like an assistant or something, something, right? something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. Um, Liz, who was the aunt. Um, so while Liz was in prison, she actually met a woman named Angel, and they quickly became each other's support system. They weren't sure if their relationship would work after prison, but it ended up working out, and Ramirez married her. Um, in February. Oh. Yeah. With are
1: they both so? The wife is out too
0: yeah they're both out now yeah so they they married and um had cassie it was her maid of honor yeah which is really sweet and so while while liz and her now wife were in prison they both worked at a print shop and learned the trade upon release both women began working at a print shop in san antonio called litho press utilizing the skills they honed behind bars so Liz's wife is a supervisor at the shop, and the two got the owner on board with a re-entry program to hire ex-offenders. And they have already hired one woman that Liz met in prison who was working there part-time on a trial basis. Oh, which is so nice. I love that.. Yeah.
1: So some good came out of a terrible situation.
0: Yeah. She says that hiring these people give them a chance, but it's beneficial for the print shop too, since these people already have the skills. She says she enjoys attending job fairs for parolees on behalf of the print shop. And when the ex-offenders learn that she had been in prison too, she knows what they've been through and isn't judging them. They Mm -hmm. show belief in... um, and everything and and a sigh of relief too Mm -hmm. she says when i see them i see myself as i try to be compassionate and understanding and willing to help as much as i can and i think that's why i really enjoy it it gives me the satisfaction to know if i can help just one person then i know i did the right thing
1: i love that next time i visit san antonio (laughs) i'm gonna visit the print
0: shop there you go (laughs) press.
1: (laughs) we need shirts right is that what kind of print oh, shop yeah. it is?
0: I don't know. It's just a print shop, whatever it is. I'm yeah. going to be there. Um, okay, so lastly, she says that while or, while she was in prison, she took an online course in criminal justice since she wasn't aware of her rights or the law when she found herself in trouble and she didn't understand why her defense didn't call experts on her behalf. So she took the course to educate herself and to help steer others in the right direction since she's found that many other prisoners don't understand their rights and make the mistakes that can harm their chances at freedom. So she's, I mean, like she's killing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Good for her. Yeah, she's doing really, really well. Um, Cassie, after being released from prison, stressed about finding a job as a convicted sex offender and felon. So she had her son, now in his early 20s, take her around town looking for work. Um, she ended up finding a job, um, when the manager of the wash tub and car wash in, car wash chain in San Antonio learned about her case and said he'd be proud to hire her just after two weeks after her release. Oh, um, at the job, she met Tiffany Hurtado, another mess manager at the wash tub and felt some mutual attraction and eventually asked her out and the two married in 2016. Yay. Another marriage. I know. Um, So, local lawyer, Rosie, um, needed help in her office, and since she had become friendly with the San Antonio Four um, after helping out with their case, she reached out to Cassie asking for help spreading the word, and Cassie herself ended up deciding to take the role for herself. Uh So she joined the office and helps run the law firm and Gonzalez's new campaign. Like the other woman, Cassie enjoys all of the speaking opportunities and spreading the message that life shouldn't be taken for granted and can be taken from you in an instant. She says she and her young friends had no knowledge of how to handle their legal problems and in retrospect handled everything wrong. When speaking, especially to youth, Cassie says it's important to educate them on their rights and how to handle encounters with law enforcement. She says, we want them to be knowledgeable on the justice system. If something like this happened to us, it can happen to anyone. We thought we had to cooperate fully, which we did because we had nothing to hide, but we didn't have our lawyers present and there were so many things we should have done at our trial. So obviously learning from their mistakes and then spreading the word to others. Wow. They've done so much. They have done so much. So lastly, we have Anna. Um, When she first got out of prison, she moved back to the San Antonio area and found work at a tortilla factory. And Rosie Gonzalez, again, says that she saw Vasquez as a sharp, articulate person who would be an asset to her law firm and wanted to hire her upon her release. But this was well before the exoneration since Anna got exonerated for or Anna was out first mm-hmm. um, and she was registered as a sex offender. So she wasn't able to work with uh. her because Rosie worked with children. And even though um, Rosie tried to argue that children never came to her office, the state still wouldn't permit mm-hmm. um, Anna working there. But in March 2016, the Innocence Project of Texas proposed a full-time job to Anna. Um, she wanted to volunteer for them, but getting to be a part of it as a colleague was a no-brainer, so she took the job. Her duties are vary from finding the nonprofit organization funding to help Um, assess potential cases and working with attorneys she's also working on a project that will allow volunteers to help investigate cases under the guidance of an attorney or an investigator Uh, another key responsibility of hers is being involved with the texas exoneree community and rallying them to testify at the legislature that's amazing yeah um let me see anna says going through this experience has made her a better stronger more compassionate person who is less judgmental and materialistic For a time, she says she lost faith in the system. She says she grew up watching people on TV who were accused of something and assumes they did it, but she no longer thinks that way. One may think that the story of Anna and her friends is one of redemption, but Rosie begs to differ. Their story isn't one of redemption because they don't need to be redeemed, the lawyer muses. It's of hope. If they'd lost hope, they'd have stayed in there forever. They never stopped fighting. Which they really never did. Yeah. They kept every time, like, they were asked about it, all four of them. In fact, so Liz was tried first as the ringleader. Yeah. And was convicted first, obviously. And before going into the second trial with the three women, they were offered a plea deal. Mm-hmm. But all four of them agreed that there was no need to take the plea deal because, because they, were they were innocent. And mm-hmm. they didn't want to take a plea deal that would make anyone think that they were anything other than innocent. Right. Um, so if you want to help, you can go to InnocenceTexas.org to donate to the Innocence Project of Texas and to NCJR.org to donate to the National Center for Reason and Justice, who was the nonprofit that helps wrongly accused people mm-hmm. with crimes against children, which is very specific. It but is very specific. It helps. And, you know, without them, who knows what would have happened to the four women. But I just yeah. thought that this was such a crazy way for something like satanic panic mm-hmm. and the like the lack of knowledge that so many people have around sexual orientation, mm-hmm. um, it's to a bad mix, like at converge, that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Into this like really awful thing. And, you know, at the very end of the documentary, it's a scene with Liz, the aunt and Stephanie, her niece um, who meet for the first time since oh. everything happened, and Stephanie carries so much guilt, I'm right? Sure, yeah, for for having done this to her aunt. Um, but Liz tells her, you know, like she hugs her and she's like, "It's okay. Like, I don't, I'm not mad at you. I don't have any hatred towards you. I just, you know, I just, I love you. I could never be mad at you." And Stephanie just keeps saying, "I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry." And it's- did you cry? No, I mean, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't cry, but I felt I felt really bad because it's like they um, they said earlier, you know, in all of this, the one thing that's kind of left out of everything Mm -hmm. is the children. That's true. Yeah. To think, you know, it's an awful story for the four women who were already kind of on the outskirts of society and struggling with being you know looked at differently her, you know Liz's mom emancipating her mm-hmm. um Anna's mom actually was really really sweet in the movie she they're devout catholics um but she says that she went to her church and um spoke to her priest and asked him you know what am i supposed to do i i love my daughter but she's involved with another woman mm-hmm. and i don't know what to do and I never really have really great things to say <laughs> about like religion in this sense because I feel like you hear a lot of really awful things. But in this case, she says that the priest told her that there was enough hate in the world and that Anna and her friends were going to... This was before the... the, they were the no, this was before they were even... Um, charged before anything happened Mm -hmm. she was just saying like growing up with Anna as like an out lesbian Mm -hmm. um she went to her church and was like what am I supposed to do like my daughter is a lesbian and I know that in the religion it's not something that's okay and she says that her priest told her that Anna would have to deal with a lot of hatred in the world Mm -hmm. and that people were going to look at her differently and that she needed like a safe space and where all she felt was love. And so the mom kind of just accepted that and was like, you're right. You know, I'm not going to judge her. Mm -hmm. All I'm here to do is to love her. So that was really nice to know that at least she was there for her daughter in that way. But it's also really nice that the four of them came together and there I read in the documentary, they seem to still all be hanging out. Mm-hmm. I read a couple of like more recent articles, and it looks like they are all still very friendly. Um, but, you know, life has kind mm-hmm. of taken its course, and so they might just check in every couple months. Yeah. So they're not as close as they once were, but it's just crazy how everything happened to work out for them. Yeah. Good for that priest, though. I know. That That's was such a good a nice, response. Yeah, that was such a nice way we to We need put more it. of that. Yeah. I think he said something like, God only calls on you to love. Well, something like that, yeah. Which isn't I, like I'm not going to get <laughs> into <is> religion, nice. <laughs> but <laughs>
1: but it's such a you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a big one. Yeah. And satanic panic has been
0: a huge. Satanic panic is huge. There's so much to that, and there's so much that people just don't know. I think like before I really started reading into this, and before I heard some of the other podcasts on satanic panic, I remember it like just like I remembered like oh that that was a thing and like Mm -hmm. oh yeah like in the 80s there was these cults and stuff Mm -hmm. but I believed it as a fact and now that I'm researching into it I'm like oh that wasn't a fact like we were being sold that it was a fact and that's what we were being led to believe but really there was so much more that went into satanic panic and there was hundreds if not thousands of people who were wrongfully accused of sexual abuse and Mm -hmm. ritualistic torture that just never happened so there may be more episodes on (laughs) satanic panic cases just because it's so interesting yeah i'm Um, sure there will be
1: hmm? i'm sure there will be
0: yeah so thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed think of your halloween costumes for this year because it's coming up Mm, it may be. I don't know if Halloween's canceled yet. Well, Halloween outside is canceled, but Halloween <laughs> inside isn't. Dress up inside. Have fun with your yeah. family. Buy Listen, your own candy. All the stores are already putting out their like Halloween candy and Halloween That's decorations have and stuff. That. So like, why can't we start thinking about what we're going to be?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe satanic panic. Can that be a Halloween costume? Yeah. You be the satanic and I'll be the panic. Um, oh. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh-huh. <That's> cute. <laughs> this is happening. Yeah. I also want to try to speak this into existence. I feel like if I say it and it's recorded that it might happen. Um but we have Flip from the Neighbor Who Watch podcast and I hope that one day he comes on as a guest and tells his own story.
0: Yeah. 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 Is that a yes? Maybe.
1: Okay, he's going to think about it.
0: Just so everyone knows, Flip has literally been here for every episode but refuses to acknowledge that he's like here. Like as if <laughs> as if we don't see him in the room, as if he doesn't like get up and like touch the laptop randomly and interrupt <laughs> our stories. Like he he gets mad if we like plan to record without him and is like, "Hey, why are you recording without <laughs> me?" and it's like, "You don't even want to be here." <laughs> no, but just so everyone knows, this takes like 4 or 5 hours
1: each day six it's he's been six hours six. today
0: yeah. it's 9 45 and You're we right. started at 3 It's been
1: six hours that we've been at this and he's been sitting here this whole time listening to us so mm-hmm. that's a big job so I think he should be involved and I think he should do some research and find a story that he's interested in and mm-hmm. be a guest yep that's that my that a to existence oh that's true because then flip just has to do the story <laughs> I'm in deal this has happened we just made the Pick decision your favorite story and tell us Send in your um, ideas for Flip. Oh, my God. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. Bye.